Welcome to episode 12 of Supreme Myths. I am very happy today to have as my guest Clark Neely. Um, he is currently the Vice President for Criminal Justice at Cato. Uh, before that, he was the Director of the Center for Judicial Engagement at the Institute for Justice, and we are going to get into that. Um, he has been an adjunct at Ant- Antonio- Antonin Scalia Law School, a name that doesn't come off my tongue anymore very, very well. Um, especially after this morning when I was accused on Twitter of physically being attacking him or something. Um, sorry. Uh, he was, uh, Clark was co-counsel in the landmark case, District of Columbia versus Heller. Um, he went to University of Texas undergrad, University of Texas Law School. He has written a ton of articles. He's written a book with a title two name for me to say here. Um, and Clark and I have, uh, been on panels before and I always really enjoy having him. Clark, it's nice to have you. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Thanks for doing this. So um, most of these podcasts begin with me asking my guests about myths, and we're going to do that. But before we do, this is being taped on Tuesday. Um, It'll probably be airing on Friday, but Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away on Friday night. And I just wanted to ask you whatever thoughts you might have about either her, the future, what her death means for our country, whatever you want to say. Well, you know, as a libertarian, um, uh, she was somebody uh, that I agree with sometimes and disagree with other times. Uh, but I don't think that really matters because I think the most important thing about Ruth Bader Ginsburg is um, her character and what uh, an amazing person she was. She was a towering uh, uh, personality. She accomplished so much that it's, I think, virtually any of us would feel humbled um, just thinking about um, what she accomplished even before she became a judge. She was one of the greatest public interest lawyers of all time. She practically helped invent an entire, um, you know, um, uh, wing of constitutional law involving equal protection uh, for women. And then she went on, uh, you know, to be this, frankly, heroic figure on the, the Supreme Court. So it doesn't matter to me whether you agree with her or disagree with her. I think she was a, a person of just amazing stature and integrity, and we're all poorer for her passing. Well, I, I, that's very well said, and I can't say it any better. I, I'm going to return to Justice Ginsburg when we talk about judicial engagement, but we're going to hold that off for a minute. But thank you for that. That was, that was very nice. Um, okay, so myths. Uh, you were co-counsel in D.C. versus Heller. I know you spend a, you spend a lot of time talking about guns when you're not talking about criminal justice. Um, maybe they're related. Can you give us three myths about either the Second Amendment, guns, gun control, anything you want about guns? Yeah, so a couple things. I think the first one I would say as a constitutional lawyer is that um, the Second Amendment in some ways I think is kind of superfluous uh, to this question. Um, the Whether you have a right, for example, to possess an automobile uh, or to possess a plow, which is probably the single most important invention uh, in human history when it comes to keeping people fed, um, you don't have to have a constitutional amendment to credibly assert a right to possess uh, various items, various tools that you might use in your life. Uh, and so, you know, during the two years when we did not have a Bill of Rights between 1789 and 1791, does that mean there was no free speech? There was no right to worship as you please? And I think the answer is no, because I agree with the founders that these were natural rights that are not conferred upon us by the Constitution. They're merely explicitly recognized or they are not explicitly recognized, but they exist either way. So that's point one. Um, a more practical myth about guns um, is that they are um, not useful in the way that a car is useful. Cars actually kill more people than guns do, but we're not talking about getting rid of them, even though they're not explicitly mentioned in the text of the Constitution, unlike guns. And we, we're not talking about getting rid of automobiles because they are incredibly useful and everybody understands how useful they are uh, and how much worse our lives would be if we didn't have the ability to get in a car and drive around. Um, I think one of the myths about guns is that they're essentially almost never uh, useful in a way uh, that similar to what a car is, and that the only thing they do um, is needlessly uh, take human life and inflict injuries upon people. Um, the um, the empirical evidence is strongly in the other direction. Empirical evidence indicates that guns are routinely used uh, to protect people uh, from violence and other crimes, uh, and that the number of times guns are used um, for 
lawful, legitimate defensive purposes probably exceeds the number of times they're used for criminal purposes, although no one knows uh, for sure. And then I think the, um, the third and final myth that I might point to um, is the idea that um, by, by having a law on the books, um, a particular uh, prohibition, let's say against uh, a particular kind of weapon or against high capacity magazines, that it follows that then that problem that you're trying to get at with that law will then be solved. To the contrary, the um, uh, disobedience to gun laws is widespread, persistent, and well-documented. Uh, just to take one example, there are about 60,000, 60,000 lawfully owned guns uh, in New York City, and the Department of Justice estimates that there are about 2 million guns in the entire city. Uh, and so the idea that we can you know, sort of legislate our way out of gun violence or legislate our way out of some of these problems, I think, um, is uh, demonstrably problematic, if not baseless, uh, because when people feel like they want to own a gun or a particular kind of gun or equipment, they're just going to do it in most cases and hope that they don't get caught. Uh, and so I think that the policy response needs to be more realistic, more fine-tuned. And if you think all you need to do when there's a particular problem is outlaw the thing that's causing the problem, uh, I'm here to tell you that it's very unlikely that that's going to have much of an effect. I think we've learned that from the war on drugs, which is a point you've made <clears throat> before. All right. That was awesome. Um, I'm not going to argue with you about myth number two because I wouldn't, I wouldn't deign to do that because you're an expert in that and I'm not. Uh, but myths one and three, I think, are related in a way. Um, so when you say – when you characterize something as a right and there's no question that the founding fathers believed in natural law and natural rights, that's I don't think historically debatable. When you characterize something as a right for number one or when you're saying our policy about guns on number three is wrong, just like it's wrong for the war on drugs, and we need to have a better policy because you're not, again, I'm, you're not in favor of no laws about guns, right? I mean, I, you're just in favor of good laws about guns, right? I assume. Okay. So my question is where do judges come in? That's my question. So before I, I'm going to I'm, I'm going to give you my spin on this because this is a conversation. Not a, but first, I want to hear your spin. Where do guns come in? Either when it comes to guns, when do judges come in? Maybe I am threatening judges. I don't know. When <laughs> when when do uh, judges come in for natural law rights and for kind of bad policy? You know what I mean? B bad gun policy. Right. Right. So that's a great point, right? That there is a distinction between um, enlightened versus unenlightened or effective versus ineffective policy on the one hand uh, and what's constitutional and not constitutional. And, you know, just to give a quick example outside the world of guns, I spent most of my career litigating occupational licensing laws, challenging laws that require somebody to get a license. Now, uh, I think that it's probably on balance not a great idea to license doctors and lawyers because I'm, you know, very libertarian. I think that gives people a false sense of confidence about the people that they that they hire to do those jobs. But I don't think it's unconstitutional because I think you can make a pretty good case that the licensing of doctors and lawyers um, is plausibly an attempt to to advance some genuine public interest, even if it maybe in my view doesn't really actually work. <laughs> By contrast, take one of the silliest laws I ever litigated, which was a law in Louisiana that required an occupational license to be a florist. I don't think it's remotely plausible that that law uh, is, is it was enacted in the service of some genuine public you know, good, any effort to advance the public interest. It's, it's just nakedly anti-competitive. That's all that's going on there. So I would, I would sort of transfer. But that being said, so the the. Uh, licensing doctors and lawyers, I might say, is, I think, bad policy, but not unconstitutional. Licensing florists, I think, is both bad policy and unconstitutional. Transport all this. Hold, 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 hold on one yep. second. We're, so we're going to get much deeper when we get to natural law. So hold on. Can I just react to that statement? Of course. So, of course. so and again, I am not going to argue about the policy aspects of this. Uh, um, I'm, I'm just not. Um, my, 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 you said plausibly in the public interest. I think that's what you said. Yep. It, but I don't – I could be wrong re reading your prior work. Is that your standard you want a judge to apply? Is this law plausibly in the public interest? Uh, I would probably advocate for something with a little more teeth. But but um, as you know or you may know from my writings, I – if all that happened in, in an occupational licensing case was that the judge made an effort to determine whether the law in question was – you know, sort of plausibly advances some genuine public interest – um, that would be a much different uh, framework 
than we apply today, where the judge pretends to be doing that, but then actually engages in this sham and this fraud that we call rational basis review, where the, the law ends up getting rubber stamped regardless of whether it plausibly advances a public interest. So you know that I agree with you about that. That's one of the, okay. that's one of the places we do agree, but on slightly different grounds, I think. Yeah. Uh, the rational basis test has been a sham for economic legislation since, what, at least the 1950s, but probably the 1930s. Um, but Williamson Octical was probably the case that we're both thinking about where there was clearly a sham. Um, so I think there's a lack of transparency there. Judges should not claim to be reviewing laws when they're, in fact, rubber stamping them with no. So we agree on that. Yeah. What the actual standard should be is a much more difficult question. And, and, yes. and, and um, I was going to get to this with judicial engagement, but let's get to it now. Um, and then we'll go back to natural rights in a minute. Um, I guess your assumption in all of those arguments is that rent-seeking, that florist law, I assume, is probably an example of florists currently in business trying to keep other florists out of business. And yes. the famous Lochner case, of course, was complicated. But one of the things going on there was big bakeries trying to keep immigrant bakeries out of business. We agree on that, too, I think. There were other things going on, but that was the main part of it. All right. Tell me why rent-seeking is something judges should strike down. Yeah, well, so this comes down to the, the, the uh, question of what you think are within the sort of legitimate what is within the legitimate ambit of what we call the police power, which, as you and I know, but some of your viewers might not, is not doesn't really refer to the power of the state to criminalize things, although it might sound like that. It really refers to the scope within which the state may legitimately make policy. Um, and the Supreme Court, even the Supreme Court's incredibly lenient uh, you know, framework for rational basis review requires that the law be rationally related to a legitimate government interest, which tends to suggest that there may be some illegitimate government interests, and we know that there are. Throughout our history, some of the illegitimate government interests that we've seen manifested were the desire, for example, to, um, to impose invidious discrimination on particular groups of people. That's been a part of our history. That's not a legitimate government end. Um, Self-enrichment is another thing that we've seen throughout our history. Uh, and uh, my wife is from the north side of Chicago, and there's a case that I mentioned in my book where a couple of real estate developers were doing very well uh, flipping condos, and then they got a visit from an alderman who suggested that if they wanted to continue doing very well flipping condos, it would be, it would be a good idea uh, for them to make certain contributions uh, <laughs> to some of the politicians in the area. Um, so that, that, too, would be not a legitimate government interest. And, you know, reasonable people can differ quite clearly about whether naked rent seeking is or is not uh, a legitimate government. Just rent seeking, meaning um, effectively policy that is made simply to advance the economic interests of one group as at the expense of another group. Cass Sunstein, Randy Barnett, um, myself and others uh, argue that, that, that naked protectionism, naked, naked favoritism, uh, rent seeking in a word, is not a legitimate government interest. Other people believe that it is. And there's actually, as you may recall, there is a split of authority among the federal circuit courts uh, on that exact question. Uh, there are two circuits, uh, the uh, Second Circuit and the Tenth Circuit, that say that rent-seeking is a legitimate government interest. And there are three circuits, uh, Sixth, Fifth, and Ninth, that say it's not. So this is an open question as, as, as a matter of constitutional doctrine, and reasonable people can and do differ. I think it's a really hard question, Carl, to be honest. And I, I don't and I and I don't have I have a lot of strong opinions. I don't have a strong, strong opinion about this one. It yeah. it does it see I, I think I think I'm I'm now channeling Justice Stevens or maybe Justice O'Connor. I've never channeled Justice O'Connor before, I don't think. Um but but Stevens or O'Connor, um maybe Souter to some degree. Um I think we have to be highly contextual here. Like I'm 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 not sure I agree with any of those circuit opinions that say rent-seeking is always this or always that. If, if there is a – I haven't thought through what I'm about to say, so I'm a little nervous about this. But yes. if there is a commodity that is very important and can be distributed more beneficially through less competition than more competition, and I think there are commodities like that. Not, I think most are not like that, but some are like that. Then there might be a legitimate interest in making sure this commodity is distributed or you know sold that governs the greater good. But there are other commodities where that wouldn't be true for. And so maybe isn't the answer sometimes yes, sometimes no? 
Well, it might be. I mean, it depends, I think, how much baggage is coming along for the ride and how naked that favoritism really is. Um, you know, there's a case that, that this will probably jog your memory if it wasn't foremost in your mind, but the New State Ice case um, from Oklahoma. Yeah. There was actually a law in Oklahoma at one time that made it illegal for people to uh, to produce ice without permission from the state. And the argument was essentially along exactly the lines that you just made, which is, look, if we, if we don't have the state governing who can get into the ice making business and keep in mind i mean this is before air conditioning before probably even modern refrigeration so ice was a really big deal to have uh in a place like oklahoma and the theory was look if we don't have the government regulating that industry we'll get what's called destructive competition uh and and maybe there'll be no ice uh that effectively is a sort of an economic question, right? That's a matter of economic theory. Uh, if you subscribe to the notion that that actually plausibly could could occur, then we're not really talking about rent-seeking at that point. We're talking about the attempt to ensure the availability of a of a necessary commodity. Uh, and if, if someone could prove to me that the only way to ensure the, the availability of a necessary commodity, whether it's ice or some kind of medication or whatever, is you know, that kind of government regulation, I'm probably going to go along and say, yeah, you know what, that's, but I'm not going to go along because I'm, I, I, I've agreed that rent seeking is okay. I'm going to go along because you convinced me that a matter, as a matter of economic necessity, the public interest really is advanced by the enforcement of that exclusionary licensing regime. And I, I, I think it's a great example. And, and I, and of course we do have these kind of regimes for water, for sanitary, right. And we, and we deal with these public utilities that are monopolies in effect. Um, I guess what I want to ask and I think it's we're in a really hard space here, and I admit it's hard. So I'm not, again, I'm not stating a strong opinion. I will do that later. Um, when the lawyers for a state or a city come into a courtroom and say what my opponent is calling rent seeking, we're calling preserving a commodity that that the public needs in a more efficient manner, or a public safety rationale. Now I agree, this is not where the law is right now. The law is rubber stamping no matter what, and you and I agree there's issues with that. So, but you know, my career is dedicated to the question: What should a judge do when parties come into court and make arguments? Yeah. And it seems to me, if a government official comes in and says, "We're not doing this to benefit our pockets, or even a particular subset of our contributors' pockets, we're doing this because we think the people are better off." I guess I think I want review of that. Don't get me wrong, but I think it has to be extremely deferential. Maybe you disagree with that. Yeah, so um, I do, um, and I think a lot of it probably comes down to kind of how nefarious do you think the government is a capable of being, and b has a propensity for being. And for me, my answer is extremely nefarious. Uh, by which I mean, I think the government has learned how to be extremely duplicitous in representing uh, what ends it is pursuing, um, you know, in assessing a situation and saying, hey, here's this thing we want to get away with that is improper or that, that, that if, you know, a judge understood we were trying to do this, we wouldn't be allowed to do it. So let's see if we can go into court and pull the wool over the judge's eyes and persuade him or her that we're trying to do this other thing. And a good example of that, I think a good example of that, um, is the litigation over these um, uh, uh, rules for uh, abortion providers, right? And so if you run an outpatient abortion facility, you your, your, whatever doctor is on call has to have admitting privileges at the nearest hospital, right? And you have to have certain equipment in the facility and it goes on and on, right? And you could actually, you could get to the point where maybe you require that the facility has to have a helicopter landing pad on the roof with, <laughs> you know, paramedics and a, and a helicopter, you know, on standby the whole time. And at a certain point, it would become economically infeasible to operate the facility, right? And I think, me, from my perception, um, if you take a state like Texas, right, or Mississippi or something like that, and, and you, you, you stack up all these requirements, right, that, are, that make it economically impossible to operate that facility, and then you look at some facility like where they administer colonoscopies, where the rate of, of, uh, of problematic procedures is higher, so there's more likely chance that you're going to need to rush somebody to the hospital, and they don't have any of these requirements, um, I think at a certain point it becomes sufficiently clear that that what's really going on here is an attempt to, for example, shut down 
that facility. It's you're not trying to protect the patients of that facility. You're trying to shut it down. Right. Well, that's a fascinating example, and I'm really glad you used it. And, of course, for those watching who don't know, the court struck down those rules, you know, recently. Um, but that's a fascinating example because it puts me in a um, argument against interest mode. I'm pro-choice all the way down, always have been, work for Planned Parenthood, etc. See, you're afraid of the government, and you're afraid of legislators, and you're afraid of statutes and all that. You and Randy and my friend Ilya Soman, and, you know, you all are, are really afraid of that, and I understand that. If I may, on personal privilege, I might substitute the word disdainful for, for afraid, but... Either way, you're, you're, okay, well, that's even better for what I'm about to say. You're afraid and disdainful of the government in that regard. See, I'm afraid and disdainful of judges. And yeah. what I can't understand, and let me finish this thought, is, is why you guys don't consider judges part of the government. So on the abortion example, I'm pro-choice, so I don't feel this way. Well, I do feel this way as a constitutional matter, but that's too complicated right now. What Texas and Louisiana really want to do is stop abortions. That's what I mean, we all know that, that, and they barely even hid that, right? I mean, the only reason they hid that is in their briefs to win the case. They want to stop abortions, and they could stop abortions if it wasn't for judges. And they view judges acting perniciously, horribly, out of line in stopping them from being able to prohibit abortions. It strikes me that for every example you're going to give me of a, legis- of, of a law that you thought was terrible, I can't give you as many court decisions because there are more laws than decisions, but I can give you decisions with much broader reach and, more importantly, more national reach at the Supreme Court rules than a Louisiana law. Remember, even after Louisiana and Texas forbid abortions, they're going to be legal in New York and they're going to be legal in California, probably, right? So why aren't you so... Why doesn't your disdain run to judges? We pay their salaries. They're government officials. They are the government. Right. I mean, uh, so a couple things. Um, let me give you one example. The first time I went to uh, Puerto Rico, I was there for a friend's wedding, and we were uh, driving through downtown. And I noticed that unlike most cities here in America, um, basically every building had bars on the windows, apartment buildings, businesses, whatever. Um, generally speaking, it's not a great idea to have bars on all of your windows. It's, you're, you're, you're in much greater danger. For example, if there's a fire, it's harder to get out. But it's rather obvious why they did that. They're not doing that, you know, to make an aesthetic statement. They're, they're doing that because in their estimation, whatever danger there is that, that comes from putting bars on your windows is exceeded by the danger of not putting bars on your windows. And that would be my basic response here is that I, I certainly concede that judges uh, can can be, you know, illiberal uh, and, and, you know, act in ways that are counter to the interests of ordinary citizens. But there's a, a couple things about this. First of all, um, because judges are limited in their jurisdiction, uh, it may be that, you know, the, uh, the some judges on the D.C. District Court across the river from where I live, um, you know, even if they had some nefarious designs on my freedom, it would be very difficult for them to just unilaterally reach out. Um, they have no ability to subject, subject me to their jurisdiction um, unless certain you know, requirements are met. And they can't just wake up one day and initiate some kind of a court proceeding against me. So I, judges are more limited in their scope, whereas, you know, any legislator where I happen to live, any, any member of Congress can wake up one day and just write a law that's going to apply to me. And, and, and limit my freedom. And they don't need to wait for any, you know, the initiation of any kind of a lawsuit or anything like that. Now, it has to go through a lot of hoops and hurdles, and it's not just a matter of showing up one day and, you know, uh, filing a bill. I get that. But in principle, a big difference between legislators and judges is that a federal legislator has, in, in, has the practical ability to limit my freedom just because they want to. That's not true of judges. Uh, and then, you know, I, I would say the other thing is that, um, from a practical standpoint, what you what there's no really I don't think there's a really bright line where you can say, look, certainly we want judges protecting things like freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and the ability to go and cast a vote without having running a gauntlet of, you know, unidentified, heavily armed, you know, federal agents. I think we all want that. But well, not our president. Well, okay, that's my point, right? Yeah. So 
Are you really going to leave it up to President Trump to ensure that all of those rights are respected in the next election cycle? Because I'm not. So let's so, so I think it's a strong argument you made. Um, and I think it applies to every country on earth, every free country, every Western country, on earth, except right. ours, except ours. And, 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 the, and, and the reason, Clark, I, I think, and I, I think the reason, I don't want to generalize here, but the reason people like you and Randy and Ilya, who I would say are libertarians, I, I think one of the things we disagree about is American history. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, Ilya gets, I mean, he's written a book on, I think, you know, uh, Kelso, uh, Connecticut property Kilo. case. Kilo. Kilo, yeah. Yeah, Kilo. You know, that Ilya just foams at the mouth about that case, and he's not a foaming at the mouth kind of guy, unlike you and I. Um, um, so there are exceptions to this. But, but generally speaking, the history of the Supreme Court is stopping Congress from ending slavery in the territories and saying African Americans couldn't be citizens, stopping Congress from ending discrimination in theaters and restaurants in 1875, um, stopping Congress from ending child labor, maybe a more controversial case, but still, um, and, and you know, the Voting Rights Act, striking that down, I think was absolutely absurd. I think Citizens United's result is correct, but the rationale is crazy and overbroad. My point about this is, in our country, with a, with a perfect storm of life tenure, a strong tradition of judicial review, and, and, and very political judges, they do enormous amounts of damage. And they have done – on issues we'd, we'd agree on. I think we'd agree on a lot of those issues. So I, so I agree that in countries without strong judicial review, politicians are more – legislators are more dangerous. In a country like ours, I think our history shows the Supreme Court is pretty damn dangerous. So I guess I'm having trouble processing this, right? I mean, if I understand your point correctly – the reason why our legislators seem relatively more responsible is, is that is because of our tradition of judicial review. No, what I'm no. saying, no, no, what I'm saying is, aggressive judicial review is the problem, not judicial review. So, ah. w- which which is my segue to get us back to myth one. How is that? Pretty good. Well, um, aggressive, aggressive is doing an awful lot of work in that sentence. It seems to me, right? Yes. Because we're, we both agree with judicial review. We just disagree about where the. Well, the you don't think Dred Scott was aggressive? Oh, listen, I'm not I'm not disputing that the Supreme Court has acted disingenuously, that they've sometimes applied, uh, you know, unduly rigorous standard review. All I'm saying is that, you know, as a as a general matter, you you, you know, you've got to pick something right, whether you're going to have multi-tiered or you're going to have some kind of a baseline or whatever. But unless we're throwing out the institution of judicial review altogether, which it sounds like we're not, then it just comes it becomes a question of, okay, like where on the imperfect dial, you know, face are you going to set the needle? Alexander Hamilton told us, and not only Alexander Hamilton, but if you look at okay, so for, uh, this is not a trap, but I do want to ask you this: Do you yeah. self-identify as an originalist? I I don't I don't feel like I've got my finger firmly enough on the pulse of that debate. Fair to, enough. You know, I, I certainly consider myself to be some version of a textualist. Yeah, and that's and different. I, I, what? That's different. But, yeah, no, I, well, and that's one of the reasons I don't respond is because I feel yeah. like you have to almost um, – it's, it's almost like, uh, you know, being a, 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 a baseball fan or something like that. I just – you know, I haven't, been, I haven't been following the originalism debate carefully enough to know sort of where the state of the art is right now. But I, am, I find myself extremely sympathetic to some version of the original understanding version of originalism. But I, I, I also have to acknowledge that it, it, it gets – you know, it, it gets so um, – theoretical at some point that it's like trying to explain string theory when you don't really understand quantum mechanics. I just, you know, right. well, in fact, in fact level, I got to say, I don't get what's going on here. Well, that that's really honest and fair. And that's what I love about you. Um, on Monday, on Monday, I wrote a blog post. One of the points I made was originalism is a they, not an it. And that's yeah. really true because there were so many different theories. Right now. So when, when Hamilton and Madison and Jay, and I'm not bringing this up for originalist purposes. I'm bringing it up because they were smart men who were trying to think about hard things at a very critical moment in the world's history, right? When they, so so when, when people complain, when Brutus, who was the guy who wrote a lot of essays against the Constitution for those watching, um, he complained that judges were going to be too strong in this country, that if you give them judicial review, we're going to have a country where the power to veto is the ultimate power 
And, and, and so Hamilton, Madison, and Jay responded to that in the Federalist Papers. And what Hamilton, who thought the most about this, said was, don't worry, relax, calm down. Judges aren't going to be that powerful for a lot of reasons. And, 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 I, and I, don't want to be dis- I don't want to be disingenuous about this. A main reason was they have neither person nor sort, right? So, so, they, so that's a big – but a second reason, and this is what I want to talk to you about. The second reason is they'll only strike down laws when there's an irreconcilable variance between the law and the Constitution. And all the early smart people who thought about judicial review talked about it in terms of modesty, humility, clear error, strongly deferential. So when you say I don't have a – so that's my standard. My standard is if, if, if you can really make the argument this is obviously inconsistent with the Constitution, strike it down. But that's never been our system. So that's, so, so that's my answer. That's my standard of review, at least for the normal constitutional case. Does that bother you? Uh, I mean, everybody's entitled to their own view, of course. <laughs> I didn't mean it that way. I, I would say this. Um, we have abundant evidence that the framers uh, or the founders were not perfect. We know that. Yeah. Uh, and n- nor were they perfect in their conception uh, of sort of best practices, we might say. Uh, we, the, maybe the most famous one is the three fifths comp- compromise, uh, which, which you know, if you're going to, if you're inclined to be charitable, you would say um, that some of them held their nose and embraced that you know fundamentally kind of amoral uh, compromise because they realized that that without that compromise or they believed that without that compromise there wouldn't even be a constitution. So, but but they had you know they they were right about some things and they were not right about other things. I would say. And um, another example would be their confidence. Oh, hold on one second. Hold on one second. Is your understanding of originalism that we're allowed to pick and choose what they were right about and what they were wrong about? No, it depends. It depends. So to take an example, um, you don't get to even if you think it would be a better idea to allow uh, non non natural born citizens to run for president. You don't get to just say, well, you know, we're smarter now. We're more, you know, ecumenical, or we're more, you know, less xenophobic, or whatever. Or, or just times have changed, you know, and, and it's less likely that somebody born in England would have, you know, a, a potentially treasonous allegiance to England. You could actually make a pretty strong argument for effectively ignoring that provision in the Constitution. Um, I don't think we can do that. I think we just I think we have to amend the Constitution if we want to make space for a non-natural born president. Uh, but when it comes to things that are kind of more of a meta question, like whether you what what should your standard of judicial review be? Are we locked in to their potentially erroneous belief about where that dial should be set? I don't think so. We know, for example, they had a fairly high degree of confidence that it would be difficult for states to tyrannize their own citizens because the, because the, the state government would be closer you know, to their political base. History suggests that was at, le- at least a miscalculation, if not a disastrous misconception. <laughs> um, I, you know, and, and of course, you know, Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson is rolling over in his grave, but go ahead. Well, I, you know, listen, I, I, uh, I would say this. I, I actually would doubt that Thomas Jefferson, of all the founders, would be uh, take serious issue with the proposition that uh, that that they that they were mistaken about some pretty important. Oh, I agree. Things. Agreed. Uh, that, and that as long and that we can update, you know, some of those issues. Whereas other issues we can't. So if they were mistaken about the importance of not having a, a foreign-born president, we don't just get to update that by saying, well, whatever the Constitution says, let's do it differently. But if they were mistaken about, about the sort of the proper standard of judicial review, I do think we get to update that because they did not bake that into the text of the Constitution. And if it seems that they and, – and, you know, I think maybe – I am not enough of a historian to make a strong case about whether you are overstating the case, but you wrote a whole book about it and I didn't. So we're going to provisionally say that you're right. Um, I still think that it's perfectly permissible for us to, um, in effect, update that, um, you know, that rubric or update that uh, uh, assessment about what's the proper role of judges. And I don't think that we run into any uh, constitutional problems if we choose to do that. We may there may be other issues. There may be sort of a, a lack of historical fidelity or blah, blah, blah. But there's no constitutional limit on our ability to adjust the standard of review uh, in constitutional or statutory cases. I just don't think there is. Well, and I think uh, to support to support your argument there, um, the Constitution is silent on judicial review. They didn't bake they didn't bake anything into it. Um, I don't make my argument, Clark, as an originalist. I make my argument. 
I think it's a good policy, and some smart people agreed with me. Uh, um, yep. But but you yep. raise an issue that I've been fighting about with Italy for years, and we're going to do it again. Plug October sixteenth when I'm bringing him down here virtually, um, you know, <laughs> through through Zoom. Um, so let's talk. I, I, I'm still going to get back to your first myth, but we're going to wait one more minute on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Italy and I fight all the time about gender discrimination. Yeah. Because he is a self-identified originalist, um, and but and, and you're not. So you know, I mean, as much as he is, so you don't. You're not. You're not trapped into this. But I want your opinion on it. Yeah. There is no historical debate that in 1868 women were not equal citizens. They couldn't vote. Uh, the Supreme Court held in eight. You know, shortly thereafter, they couldn't be lawyer. States could stop them from being lawyers. Talk about you know your um, licensing. <laughs> Women couldn't be lawyers at all <laughs> in Illinois, and the Supreme Court approved that. But in any event, uh, they were the property of their husbands. You know, if they were married. So we know with a hundred percent historical certainty that the Equal Protection Clause was not meant to give women a heightened standard of review above anybody else. That they would get normal rational basis review or whatever, but not heightened scrutiny. And that's not historically debatable. And Ilya doesn't debate it. What he says is that view was based on mistaken facts, that yeah. women couldn't be lawyers or women weren't smart enough to vote or whatever the historical. And when the facts change, an originalist is not bound by the original understanding, which I've always, which I think is a bizarre argument for an originalist. Yep. What do we do with the 14th Amendment and gender discrimination? Well, um, <laughs> I don't think that, uh, in one sense, pragmatically speaking, that's not a very difficult question, right? Because we know what we're going to do. There is no possibility yes. uh, that the Supreme Court is going to walk back, yes. you know, the, uh, its gender jurisprudence. Yes. Uh, but from, you know, if we're talking from a theoretical standpoint, I have a couple of responses to that. Um, the first one would be to say that um, uh, imagine, you know, back in the 1800s, um, they referred to whales as fish. Whales, whale, whaling was one of the most important industries in New England, uh, and they thought whales were fish, right? So my argument would be that they had a misunderstanding, a fundamental misunderstanding of what that word fish encompasses. And if it somehow became relevant in the in, in 2020, um, you know, there was some old timey law or even a constitutional provision that used the word fish, it would be perfectly appropriate to exclude whales from the ambit of that statute or that constitutional provision, even if they used to include them on the basis of their mistaken belief that the word fish encompasses whales. They used the word person in the 14th Amendment. No state shall deny to any person equal protection of the laws. Women are indisputably, from every historical and philosophical you know, uh, tradition, persons. The fact that they acted inconsistently with the very language that they, had, that they themselves chose does not, it seems to me, bind us once we understand or, or come to have a different understanding of the meaning of that word, just like fish doesn't include whale anymore. Clark, I agree with that 100%. And, and that's why, that's why um, I think as a textual matter, the 14th Amendment obviously protects against gender discrimination and same thing about same-sex marriage, which is also what Ilias said about that. Yeah. But, it's, but, but, but so, so on the one hand, that's fair. That's not the argument Ilya is making. And so, my, so I don't mean to bring Ilya into the room all the time. But yeah. my, my problem with originalists is if they gave that answer, I would say, I'm good. But that's not the answer they give. And their notion that women couldn't be lawyers was not a mistake of fact. It was a mistake of values. That that was a value judgment, as opposed to fish and whales. Or Chris Green always gives me the example of numbers, and and they counted the number of people wrong in in 1788. No, those are facts. Whether right. women have the skills to do X, Y, and if we had a debate in 1980, do women have the skills to be in combat? Reasonable people would have disagreed about that, and that right. would be a value question, not a fact question. Right. Um, so, so okay. So I just want to, but I think you're. I agree with your. Once again, we agree. I agree with your answer on that. So, so let me really quickly address this point about women lawyers. So. Yeah. Two points. First of all, it was only, as far as I know, it was only Illinois that forbade women from being lawyers in the mid-1800s. And you could actually go to any other state and actually, so they were making an empirical assertion that women were incapable of being lawyers because they simply lacked the sort of the mental faculties for it. But there was evidence available even at that time that that was a false 
Well, Empirical that, perception. Well, I don't know what Illinois thought. My guess it was rent-seeking. But leaving that aside, um, my, my, but the Supreme Court's decision wasn't based on that. The Supreme right. Court's decision was based on women aren't protected by this particular constitutional provision. Um, I'm not sure that's right. I, I, that the, I've read the Bradwell case a bunch of times, yeah. and my take from the from the from the court's uh, opinion in Bradwell um, is simply that the state of Illinois has made a sufficient. Actually, you know what? You may be right, but there, but but if they say that, they also in the same breath say that the state of Illinois has made a legislative judgment that the proper role of women is to be home, having babies. Yeah, and yeah. and also, and then this shows up, I think, in um, the concurring oh, opinion. Get, uh, who wrote the concurrence? But there's a there's a concurrence from someone who should have known better. Uh, may have been Chase that uh, that um, you know, empirically speaking, women just don't have the chops to practice law, which which of course we now know is is preposterous. And I think you're probably right. Even back then, I'll bet they knew it too, and it probably was more than a dollop of rent seeking. Yeah. It, 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 well, well, most of all, it was a value judgment, in my opinion. All right. Let's yeah. circle all the way back to myth number one. All right. And it's already, oh, my God, 45 minutes. And I do want to give you time yeah. at the end to rant about criminal justice because I, okay. I, love, okay. I, I love your work on that. And I, and I had Carissa Hessick on last week, and she ranted about it. And I, I, we can't have too many people ranting about it, right? So, I, I, but bef- so before we get to criminal justice, um, so – What the Founding Fathers thought about natural law, according to Judd Campbell, who wrote a, a professor at Richmond, who wrote a fantastic article in Yale about this, was – and I think he's right. As an historian – again, this is just history. We could change our minds today. But about history was natural law is important. It's reflected in the Ninth Amendment, I think. It is, it is important. It is crucial to our society's well-being. It's not judicially enforceable. They, they did not think that – I mean, there were some rights that were judicially enforceable, but there were an infinite number of natural law rights that were not judicially enforceable. And according to Judd, the First Amendment even reflected a desire against prior restraints, which we know that's what the basis was because England used to put prior restraints on print, printing presses. Um, but even – our, our entire First Amendment doctrine is anti-originalist, or at least, or at least not supported – by originalism, according to Judd, and I think he's right. So your, your first idea about natural law, can't we live in a world where we take natural law seriously? Because I think we should. Um, where, where there are certain values that we all hopefully adopt, but we don't expect life tenure judges to be the ones to figure that out? Well, I think um, – I feel like maybe you're conflating a couple of points there. I don't think that – I am not familiar – with, I'm not a philosopher, but I'm not familiar with any natural law tradition that, in effect, insists uh, upon a particular perception of the appropriate role of judges in enforcing or not enforcing uh, disputes between citizens and the state. And, you know, Article Three of the Constitution confers upon the federal judiciary the, the duty, not just the authority, but in fact the duty um, to decide cases and controversies, including cases and controversies that arise between citizens and the state. So let me give you an example. Um, to go back to my earlier example, imagine that the state of Massachusetts had forbidden the possession of a plow, you know, west of a certain demarcation. Uh, because they wanted to discourage agriculture beyond that point and they wanted to encourage whatever it might be, logging or trapping or something like that. My belief is that even though there there is no mention of plows in the Constitution, you would still have had a rather strong constitutional claim that you have a natural right uh, to support yourself through your own labor using whatever implements are are you know suited to doing that and the state had better have some fairly compelling justification for depriving you of the implements that are necessary to support yourself uh and well hold, hold on can't can we get there through property i mean can't i mean that's in the constitution that's not natural law that's in the constitution okay how about the musket that you that you prop up against the tree while you're while you're plowing your fields in case you're attacked by you know a bear an outlaw or you know in justice kennedy's famous formulation Indians, bears, or outlaws, right? I mean, so so your musket is property, and your plow is property, your horse is property. So if we're going to go the property route, now we're going to have to have a discussion about what are the limits on the government's ability to declare particular articles of property to be contraband that may not be possessed, like fentanyl or whatever. Uh, so it's, you know, there are no easy solutions. I think we end up 
you know, coming up against some fairly fundamental and challenging questions about, you know, where the the autonomy of the individual must yield to the legitimate authority of the government and who should be, you know, in the role of adjudicating, you know, that border in any given situation. So I think one point I want to make in response to that is natural law as an idea has has been around you know forever. Yep. Judicial review began in 1788, so uh, 1789. So no country in the world had it until 1789. So I, I I think we know that natural law can be a thing without judicial re- review, and certainly without aggressive judicial review. Maybe maybe it's better with judicial review. I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying natural law has been around a lot longer than judicial review. I also want to make the historical point. The founding fathers, when thinking about this, and and maybe they were wrong. Again, I'm not, you know, um, they certainly did not think judicial review was essential to making sure natural law was a real thing. In fact, according to Judd, they thought probably the opposite. Um, And again, I think you're underestimating how often judges get in the way of natural law ideas. So people, so people who think abortion is a violation of natural law because it's murder, they would argue judges got in the way of that. And I can't tell them, and I can't tell them they're wrong, Clark. I can just say I disagree with your interpretation, but I can't tell them they're wrong, right? I mean, one person's natural abortion is a great example. Maybe euthanasia is another one. One person's natural law is another person's right. How do we navigate that? Well, it's not easy. So two points. First, um, I actually think that that it's fairly clear that you'll see something that looks a lot like judicial review um, in England before the colonization uh, of America. I mean, there's the um, a famous case of the uh, uh, Dr. Bonham's case in which yeah. Lord Cook, uh, you know, struck down a, a monopoly. I think it was on playing cards. I mean, put that aside. So they, it's well, they didn't strike brand. it down. That's a myth. They interpreted a law of parliament in a way to not create a problem. Yeah, okay. I mean, fair enough. But I would say that judicial review did not spring, you know, sort of uh, whole and and completely newborn on the shores of North America. There was something like it, you know, already. But more importantly, put that aside. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that's made, true, but go ahead. Well, there was certainly a tradition of judges having a role in deciding to what extent a particular law would or would not be permitted yes. to restrict yes. people's yes. freedom. Yes. In England. Yes. All right. Yes. So, and we don't need to get hung up on whether that's judicial review or some other kind of thing. Yeah. Um, the the to your, I think to the more you know important point here, I would certainly never take the position that judges get it right all the time, and or that they have not done significant you know damage to to people's um, you know uh, uh, autonomy or their ability to you know, sort of follow what they believe to be their own moral precepts. That that happens. But again, to go back to my example, it's a question of you know choosing the least objectionable of, of two objectionable alternatives. And if, if, the alternative, if the alternative is to leave it up to a President Trump, for example, um, to ensure that people are not hassled when they turn out to vote in November and that they have the ability to go and protest, you know, in, in downtown areas without being beat up by a bunch of federal goons um, and or to have a judiciary that is prepared to exercise some meaningful level of judicial review to ensure that the right of assembly and the right to to vote are not unduly interfered with, I, I just know which way I'm going to go well, because so, I, I figure I, I just feel like I know which one's going to do more damage. Well, I think the data of the last uh, 14 years proves you wrong because according to Sheldon Whitehouse, and I don't think he has it exactly right, Senator Whitehouse, I don't think he has it exactly right, but he's close enough. Since 2006, there have been roughly 75 cases directly involving elections, voter suppression. I'm not talking about abortion or I'm talking about pure election type issues. And Republicans have won 75 times. Now, I don't think that's true. I think they've won about 72 times, but it doesn't matter. To to, to trust the Roberts court to do what you want them to do, I think that's a leap of faith. But I don't want to get hung up on that. Wait, one ahead. point, one yeah. point. It's it's a huge mistake in my judgment to only look at the, what the Supreme Court is doing. You may disagree with the outcome of those cases, but but at the same time that, that you know, in which those cases were handed down, there was a lot of work going on in the lower courts. And Fair it is, is, you know, there are definitely cases where lower courts have protected people whose, whose rights would otherwise have been trampled. Fair enough. I agree with that. Um, all right. I'm going to shut up for a minute. I really am. <laughs> 
I'd like to know from you, because this is really what you've been working on, and I, I respect you so much for this. Um, what are the major problems of our criminal justice system, and, what, and, and how can we go about fixing it? So our criminal justice system is absolutely rotten to the core. There is no institution in American life uh, that inflicts more injustice on more people than our criminal justice system. And it is just an absolute uh, disgrace. And the the problems, unfortunately, are endemic. Uh, they are fundamental. And I would say that that they they flow from two basic two really basic problems. Um, the first is that we have lost our conception of what are the legitimate what is the legitimate function of criminal law in a society the and and, and to be clear and, and i hope i don't just sound like you know a frothing libertarian but the essence of a criminal legal system is to authorize the government to use force to discourage and or punish people who engage in certain conduct that has been proscribed the only legitimate function of a criminal justice system in my judgment is to prevent behavior that represents a threat to the very fabric of civil society because you're violating somebody else's rights, you're harming them, you're preventing them from doing, you know, living their own life, um, or you're engaging in conduct that makes it impossible for the rest of us to go about our business peacefully and, and you know, participate in democracy together, et cetera. So the first kind of, uh, you know, fatal uh, pathology of American criminal justice is that we criminalize so much beyond that. And just take a, a really easy example. The continued criminalization of marijuana. Um, yeah. I think I'm the only libertarian who's never tried it, which is fine. Um, <laughs> I like a cocktail, uh, but other people like to smoke marijuana. And you know, one of the great ironies is that of the three most uh, uh, dangerous, or no, of the three most popular uh, intoxicants, uh, nicotine, alcohol, and marijuana, marijuana is actually the safest. Make it four. And- th- th- throw throw in opioids, and it's four. Yeah, the, the great point. So um, so that would be an example where we've authorized agents of the state to do violence to people for nothing more than cultivating and consuming a plant uh, that you know makes you feel hungry and a little bit giddy. Um, and, and of course, the list goes on. So right off the bat, we're criminalizing a, a great deal of conduct that perfectly decent people wish to engage in and will continue to engage in, even though it's not illegal. So now we're bringing agents of the state into unnecessary conflict with those people, which, which really elevates the stakes on both sides. And that leads to, I think, what is arguably the single biggest driver of mass incarceration that almost nobody is talking about. You could not have mass incarceration without mass adjudication. The thing that really unleashed mass incarceration in America is when we allowed judges and prosecutors to hack the constitutionally prescribed process for adjudicating criminal charges, which is, of course, a jury trial, and replace it with coercive plea bargaining, which is the mechanism by which nearly all criminal convictions are obtained today. 95% of all criminal convictions are obtained through guilty pleas. And when you look at the pressure that is applied to people to get them to plead guilty, it is disgraceful. Just to take one example, maybe not a very sympathetic one. Look at the defendants in the Varsity Blues college admission scandal, right? These are people who are wealthy enough to afford the best lawyers in the country. And nevertheless, virtually all of them have pled guilty. Now, some of them are certainly are guilty, but not all of them did the same thing. Some of them didn't do much more than just make a, an unusually large donation to a university. That's not illegal, even if it ends up getting your kid into school. So some of them probably had pretty viable defenses, but nevertheless, virtually all of them have waived their right to a trial and pled guilty. And why? It's very simple. In those cases, here's what was going on. The government, the, the, the DOJ prosecutors were threatening each of those defendants with 20 years in prison and offering them two weeks to two months if they would relinquish their right to trial and plead guilty. That's referred to as the trial penalty. It is nakedly coercive, and it is the lifeblood of American criminal justice. And I have described it as coercive plea bargaining, which is just which is just a tautology. It's just plea bargaining because it's, it's almost always coercive. I've described it as a raging metastatic stage four cancer in our system of justice. And until we address that problem, we're not going to make a meaningful dent in mass incarceration until we, we address mass adjudication. So th- that's my pitch on, on the on, on, on course of plea bargaining. Professor Hessek said exactly this, exactly the same thing last week. And I suspect there wouldn't be a whole lot you two might agree on, but, but you definitely agree on that. One follow-up to that. Um, yep. 
Oh, I also want to mention, she she mentioned, I didn't really know this. I know what happened with Michael Flynn, but I didn't know that sometimes, or maybe not sometimes, maybe a lot of times, prosecutors threaten family members to, I mean, to the extent that happens, that's horrific. It's, and it's, you know, what's even more horrific. It's absolutely routine. And there's even a D.C. Circuit case that holds that it is categorically non-coercive to gratuitously threaten a family member to leverage a plea as long as you had probable cause vis-a-vis that family. And guess what? With overcriminalization, they usually will have probable cause that, that one of your family members has done at least something. And yes, I, I couldn't agree more. And it's, it is emblematic of a whole system that you have. Uh, and, and, and here I'm going to you know maybe uh, uh, volley the ball back into your court. We have a judiciary that sits by and does nothing while prosecutors apply these extraordinarily coercive levers, some of which are absolutely even more coercive than physical torture would be. I mean, I've got two little kids. And if you threaten to put me in prison for 20 years so that my kids grow up without a father, I will sign whatever you put in front of me. Yeah. Yeah, I get I no, I I get that. Um, I, I don't know what from what I'm about to say is true. My gut tells me Well, you tell me. I, I think yeah. this is bad in the federal system. But where it's really, 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 really bad is it? So I have a friend who, um, I have a friend whose daughter went to Harvard Law School. Always knew she wanted to be a public defender. Fantastic person, strong. She did New Orleans for two years, and she got sick. What she saw made her physically ill, emotionally and psychologically. Um, I've yep. heard that from other public defenders, friends. You know, um, I, I think. I think federal public defenders are better funded, have less cases. I'm not saying it's good, but isn't the real problem here the 50 states? I mean, I think that's the problem. No, I think the um, I, I think that the problems, the manifestation of the problem is somewhat different in the states versus the federal system. Uh, but if I had to pick, I'm not so sure I wouldn't pick just any random state. Here's why. Um, federal prosecutors are lavishly equipped with coercive yeah. leverage. Uh, And, you know, the the sentences, federal courts hand out decades in prison like Halloween candy these days. And here's something people don't talk about all all that much. Um, Federal prosecutors have become so adept at getting convictions that that losing a single case could actually be a threat to your career as a prosecutor because you might be the only person in your office who's ever actually lost a case. And this, I think, ramps up the pressure on them to get convictions by any means necessary. Uh, and so I absolutely there are problems in the states. And, and, and some of those problems are, you know, like the, the DA's office in New Orleans is just a, a horror story and a horror show. Right. So the problems are distinct. But there is put it this way. There's no system that you would want to get sucked into, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and where you could be guaranteed a kind of a, a fair shake. Um, and let me say one other thing really quickly, if I may. I had the most, one of the most interesting professional experiences of my life this spring. Um, I was contacted out of the blue by a solicitor in England who asked me to serve as an expert witness in an extradition proceeding. His client was, they were trying to extradite him to the Southern District of New York to stand trial for financial crimes, alleged financial crimes. And they wanted me to testify about whether a fair hearing remains or does not remain available in the United States wow. in light, of course, of plea bargaining. I wrote a report in which I said, effectively, that right no longer exists. The and right. It's been published, to, the, the, the report has recently been published in the George Mason Law Review. So, so just so I understand, your position is at least in the Southern District of New York, or maybe everywhere, the right to a fair trial effectively no longer exists. It it, it no longer exists within the the, the param, what within the requirements of the of the European Convention on Human Rights in the sense that um, it is it is improper for a court covered by that convention to render somebody into the jurisdiction of a country that does not guarantee a fundamentally fair hearing. And I think we have allowed coercive plea bargaining to displace that guarantee. You have a textual guarantee to a to a fair hearing, to a jury trial in this country, but it has been practically nullified by our indifference to coercive plea bargaining. Yeah, well, I um, not practicing or teaching in that area. Uh, I believe you and I believe Professor Hessek and I believe others who are saying this. And I and I will say, I want to say this. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a progressive. You know that. I'm on the left. Um, and, and libertarians sometimes bug me. Um, um, I think you and others, you, you and many libertarians are doing a fantastic job of pointing out the, the horrific injustice of our criminal justice system. 
and um, you know, it kind of makes me want to hug you. I mean, it's it's something that really needs to be done, and I think you explained it really, really well, and I appreciate that. One last follow up on it: How yeah. big a role does race play? Uh, race plays an enormous role uh, in our criminal justice system for two reasons. Um, first, because we still have uh, racist people and racist structures embedded in our criminal justice system. Um, I, I think it's getting better, uh, but we, st- we are not as committed to rooting that out as we need to be. That's point one. Point two is, is kind of horrifyingly banal, and it's this. Um, the, in a sense, the criminal justice system has become another industry. It's like the automotive industry. It, it is, depending on how you count, it's about a um, $300 billion uh, industry. And it, it basically has one product, which is bodies in cages. And so there's a sense in which, whether you're a police officer, prosecutor, judge, or whatever, your role in that system is to help it you know, sustain maximum output. And the, um, the way to do that is to focus your enforcement efforts on those communities with the least ability to push back. You'll want to focus on communities that have been historically disenfranchised so that when you treat them unjustly, when you single them out for disproportionate enforcement of drug laws, for example, when you screw them out of their right to counsel, you know, and subject them to this grotesquely uh, unconstitutional course of plea bargaining, you want to make sure that you're focusing those efforts on communities that can't fight back in the political process. And guess what? That's exactly what we do. And those communities are communities of color most of the time. You better believe it. Yeah. Clark, this has been, as, this has been better than I thought it was going to be, and I had very high expectations. So, Thanks um, so much. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Um, I don't know if I'm going to keep doing this silly podcast thing, but if I do, I hope to have you back because I could talk to you for days. Um, thank you very much. It was fantastic. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.